this morning, it's kind of timely that uh, we're uh, timely in that uh, what's happening just in the world right now, uh, because the section that we find ourselves in in Romans uh, chapter 8 uh, talks about suffering. And so this morning, um, uh, that's where I want to head is uh, the subject of suffering. And as I go there, uh, I wanted to ask a question of uh, how often do you think about heaven? When's the last time you thought about heaven? Uh, and I don't mean like in a fatalistic sense of thinking about heaven, like I just wish I want to get out of here so I can go to heaven, meaning I just want to die. Uh, but where you found yourself uh, thinking about, wondering about, not again what heaven's going to be like, but just you found yourself longing uh, to be with God. Um, Revelation, uh, it's interesting in Scripture, it gives snapshots of what heaven is going to be like. Um, Jesus certainly talks about heaven and as well as he talks about hell, and both are very real places, and uh, both will have people in them. Uh, but in uh, Revelation chapter 21, uh, the Apostle John paints what I think is probably one of the more clear pictures of uh, what heaven actually is going to be like. And he says this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 3 and verse 4 in Revelation 21 uh, paint probably the most detailed, uh, but I think most beautiful image of what heaven will be like. We will be able to dwell with God and be with God, and He will be our God. And then in verse 4, uh, I love how John says this, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. As I consider heaven, as I consider how John, the Apostle John, is describing heaven, uh, I just have this word that keeps coming, uh, two words that comes to mind, a phrase more, of just one day. One day what we see here, what we experience here, what we live in, one day it will not be like this. That's not to belittle anyone's pain or suffering, uh, but my heart goes out to the folks, especially in Japan, to give them the message of hope that one day, one day there is no more crying, there is no more tears, There is no more mourning or suffering. There is no more death or destruction or devastation. We will be with God. We will be his people and he will be our God. The old way of things will have passed away and God will have ushered in a new way. But one of the things that the Bible makes pretty clear, and this is why sometimes it's surprising to me, especially Christians, um, they act as if when suffering or pain becomes their reality, there's a a sense of shock, like, what? Where is this coming from? How could this be? And I'm often, and I remind people and remind myself often of something that Jesus said. And Jesus said in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
in this world, you will have trouble. This is John 16, 31. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I think sometimes we love the promises of Jesus, but we don't like that one where it says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm guessing that at some point, all of us have experienced some level of trouble. And depending on what the trouble may have been, it's the level of pain and suffering uh, varied. But the reality is that we will experience trouble or pain or suffering in this world. Now, the question that I really want to, uh, one question that I'm going to ask this morning and answer it in a few different ways, but the question is just simply this. How can suffering be used by God for our good, the benefit of others, and to God's glory? So my heart this morning is not to knock out why is there suffering, because I, I don't have to wonder or argue or try to fight that suffering is real. It's, it's very real. We've all experienced it. So the question that I really want to drive home as we walk through Romans chapter 8 this morning uh, is that question of how can suffering be used for our good, the benefit of others, and to the glory of God? I think uh, for many people, um, you know, it's interesting if, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, one of the things that Paul made clear is that as a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ uh, and you're a follower, you're a Christian, you are a son or a daughter of God. You're a child of God, that Christians are children of God. But in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, I'll just read it. It says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. If we will share in glory in heaven, then we will share in the sufferings. And it's interesting that Paul goes from talking about how we're children of God, we're kids of the king. You would think he would talk immediately about the great benefits there are about being children of God. Uh, and there are great benefits, but Paul immediately turns his attention to the question of suffering. And at some level, if you've never asked this question, you should, because you need to have an answer of why does God allow his own children to suffer? If you're a Christian, I'm not talking about people who are, don't believe in God, don't confess God, want nothing to do with Jesus. I'm talking about if you're a Christian, why does God allow his children uh, to suffer? And I think because most people don't have not a good response, but a biblical response, they live with much resentment towards God, with the attitude of, how could God treat me like this? I'm his son. I'm his daughter. What is God doing to me? What kind of father is he if he's allowing this in my life, this, this trial, this pain, this hurt, this wound, this suffering, whatever it might be? I think there are many people who kind of walk through life thinking, well, because I gave my life to God, life is, is cakewalk now. It's gold that I will never experience any type of pain because I promised to follow God and therefore God owes me something. And what he owes me is literally uh, a life that is pain-free or a life that is suffering-free. Uh, that might sound good. Uh, that might sound like something we want, but that's not something that it is all biblical. I mean, if you look at anyone in the New Testament, especially the disciples, 
They all martyred. They were all martyred for their faith. They all suffered greatly because they aligned themselves with the person of Jesus. So why does God allow his own children, why does he allow suffering? I want you to have an answer to that question. And I think a lot of the answer is found, well, for my good, for the benefit of others, and to glorify God. I think there is truth in that, and we're going to talk about that. But this is not only a question that Christians should be asking, but this is the question that many people outside the church, many people who aren't here today, many people who don't care about God, this is the question that they are asking. Why is there suffering? Why is there not only evil, but just the pain and the devastation? Just in light of what's going on over in Japan, Do you know how many people now are, again, how could God allow suffering and pain and evil and and death and destruction, how could he allow this? There was a a philosopher, uh, 19th century philosopher, who had a pretty big impact on um, the study of philosophy. His name was John Stuart Miller, and he basically argued either God is a divine weakling uh, or God is uh, just unloving. He's, he's not good. And his basic premise just stated very simply, uh, if God is all loving but does nothing to uh, intervene in terms of suffering and pain, then he's a divine weakling because he's not powerful. He may be loving and good, but he's, if he can't do anything about suffering, then therefore he's not powerful, a divine weakling. The other flip side of his argument, he said, is if God is all-powerful but does nothing to intervene or interact with pain and suffering, just human devastation, then his conclusion was simply then God is not good. So you have a choice. Either God is a divine weakling or God is not good or not loving. Now, his argument and thinking is flawed in many ways, but one uh, that stands out pretty clear to me is out of his argument, he leaves completely the question of sin. And I think we look at devastation and death and our finger immediately points to God. This is your fault. This is on you. But you have to remember that when God created and designed the world, when God created Adam and Eve and they lived in the garden There was no pain, there was no death, there was no devastation, there was no destruction. But when one choice was made to rebel against God, everything changed. Everything. Sin had this, the fallout of that one decision to rebel and be disobedient to God impacted not only man, but also creation. So, again, I'm I'm belaboring this a little bit too long, but my... My point is not to say, why does God allow suffering? My question, again, I'll repeat it, is how can God use your suffering? How can God use your pain, your devastation? How can God use that for your good, for the benefit of other people, and ultimately that God would be glorified in that? This is uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to, not going to have it up on the screen. Just want to read Romans chapter 8 in its entirety, uh, the few verses that we're looking at. I'm going to start at uh, uh, at verse uh, 18. I'll read it slow, and and I hope you catch uh, 
that Paul begins to answer this question for us. How does God use suffering for our good, the benefit of others, and for his glory? Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. He personifies the created order. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know, in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Two more verses, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, as I walk through uh, these verses, and uh, uh, specifically, um, this message for you, uh, this message for some might hit really hard today because you're in the thick of it. And so I'm excited for God to speak into the moment you are living in right now because your moment would be defined or described as just suffering. Uh, whatever, wherever it's coming from, you would describe there's just great pain, there's great hurt, there's great suffering. So this today just might be uh, God's message for you. There are others who are thinking, I don't have, things are going okay right now. I'm not in the midst of suffering. So I want you to listen to this, uh, that one day there will be, you can bank this, God promises that we will go through suffering. And the hope is that what is said today in God's word to you will not be forgotten when suffering comes. And then thirdly, uh, this is a message that I hope and I challenge that you would take to someone else who is suffering, who's not here today. Because there are many people who suffer and they have no hope. But one of the things that we'll see is suffering creates, it stirs, it fosters in us hope. And so I would ask you, who in your immediate circle of influence, in your own home, in your own family, in extended family, in the workplace, there are people who need to hear that pain is not pointless. And so you might be in the thick of it. One day you will be and you'll recall this. But all of us have someone in our life, if not many people, who need to hear the message uh, that God is in suffering and it's for our benefit, for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Number one, I'm going to give you four things of how we answer this question of how is suffering used in our life for our good, the benefit of others and the glory of God. Number one, suffering stirs in us a desire for heaven. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory 
that will be revealed in us. Paul says, I consider. So he's thought about this. He's sat with this. And if you're at all familiar with Paul, and I'm not going to tell you his whole story, outside of Jesus, I'm not sure that there was anyone who suffered as greatly as the Apostle Paul. This is a man who was abused and stoned. And I mean, this is a man who was well familiar with suffering. He lived it. He knew it. And he says this, I consider, I've thought hard about this. And his conclusion is, I can't even compare my suffering, I can't even compare suffering to what is in store for me. He can't even find words to describe. And he's being led by the Spirit as he's writing this, and he's at a loss for words. There's no comparison between the suffering and glory. And when we're talking about glory, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about eternity with God, where we are his children and he is our God. Revelation 21, the passage we read at the beginning. No words, no metaphor, no comparison could be made because when Paul considered his suffering, what it stirred in him was, wow, heaven is going to be so phenomenal. There's no comparison. Suffering stirs in us a desire for heaven. Now, Paul by no means is trying to belittle anyone's suffering, nonetheless his. So his message here in just one verse is not a message of, listen, suck it up. Like, it's not always going to be like this. But I would challenge you to, to consider, in light of where you're living, in light of what you're enduring and going through, heaven, like I just, one day, one day, it will not be like it is today. Suffering has a way of, you ever seen a horse uh, racing? He's got to have blinders on, right? Why? Because horses have bad ADD, and they're just like always looking all over the place. So they put blinders on the horse so that the horse will stay focused. And I think one of the things that suffering does in our lives is it's much like horse blinders. All we can see is suffering. All we can see is just what's right in front of us. But when suffering came for Paul, and it came, and it came hard and often, it didn't serve as blinders. It actually opened up his eyes to the reality that one day, one day, glory is waiting for me. And when he even tried to comprehend glory, there was no comparison to be even made between his present suffering and future glory. Don't let suffering blind you to the reality that there is glory, that there is heaven. And it was interesting, Rob talked about this a few minutes ago, but you know, when you put yourself out there as a Christian, when you identify yourself as a Christian, people look at you differently, they listen to you differently, they watch. People just want to see what you'll do. And unfortunately, most people want to watch you fall so that they can label you like, just like everyone else, you're just a hypocrite. And so suffering is an incredible window into our lives. And so a question, when people see you suffer, when they see you in pain, whatever it might be, what message do do you really want people to see coming from you? Because people are watching, they're certainly listening. So what message, what sermon do you want your life to preach when suffering comes? 
because you can obviously be the bitter, angry one. Is that really good to you? Is that really beneficial to anyone? And does it glorify God? No. I really want my testimony to be in the midst of suffering to a watching world of this hurts and it hurts a lot. But I can't even compare this to what God has in store for me. This is one way of how suffering benefits me, stirs in me a desire for heaven. It benefits others because it's a constant reminder that this is not it. And it glorifies God because God is glorified when our eyes and our hearts are not filled with bitterness and anger because of the suffering, but we're actually longing to be with God. Practically speaking, how do I keep my eyes on heaven when I'm in the thick of it? Because it's real easy to tell you this now, but when it hits the fan, it's hard to remember. So when it's thick, when it's painful, when the heartache is just beyond, practically speaking, how do you actually keep your eyes on, on heaven? And I'll give you two quick things here. And the first one is this. Don't seek to compare your suffering to anyone or anything else. Typically, when people start comparing their suffering, their question is not, God, I'm so thankful that they're not experiencing the pain I'm experiencing. It's, why aren't they experiencing the pain that I'm experiencing? When I start comparing my situation, my status, my circumstance with someone else, it's never helpful or healthy or even beneficial to me or to anyone else. And ultimately, what it does, it gets me looking around. And when when suffering comes and I'm in the midst of it, the last thing I need to be doing is looking around. I need to be looking up. I need to be looking forward to what God has for me. So the first one is don't seek to compare your suffering to anyone or anything else. And then the second one is just simply this. Consider Jesus on a cross. When you're in the midst of the suffering, consider Christ on the cross. And I love how the author of Hebrews said it is uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You have this picture that Jesus was not just looking at the cross, he was looking to glory. And he was not only looking to his glory, but to the glory that those who would come to him would share in, in heaven. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When Paul considered his present suffering, it stirred in him a a hunger for heaven, a hunger for glory. That's number one. Number two, suffering will be used to produce great joy in you. Suffering will be used by God to produce great joy in us, in you. Paul, as I read in uh, verses uh, 19 through 22, he looked at creation and he specifically personified creation and used words like creation is groaning itself. It is frustrated with its present state. It's longing for the joy that one day it too will be delivered. It too will be redeemed. And Paul uses this metaphor of creation of childbirth. 
And it's a very interesting metaphor because, uh, let me just ask this question. Has anyone ever seen, and if you have, don't raise your hand because it will blow my example. Um, has anyone ever seen a picture of a woman who's in labor? Okay, general, don't raise your hand. Generally speaking, you never see an, an image or a picture of a woman who is at the peak of her labor. Why? Because she's screaming. No one wants to see a picture of a woman in labor. When is the first picture that comes? Well, when she's kind of cleaned up, fixed her hair, and there's a cute baby in her arms. Paul likens what's happening in creation to literally childbirth. Someone, a woman who is physically in labor, it's painful, it's hard, there is suffering going on. But the metaphor, what happens after the pain? There's joy. I've not met, I've met a lot of women who have given birth. And one of the great things that I get to do is I get to go visit folks in the hospital and just the look on their face. I'm like, I saw you a few hours ago. You didn't look, you didn't look this good. But they, there's a glow. If you've ever seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've never met a pregnant woman who, as soon as she delivered, said, yeah, that wasn't worth it. That, that, was, that just wasn't worth it. Put him back. Put her back. I think the point I'm trying to make is simply, uh, pain has a way of producing joy. God will use pain, God will use suffering in our life to produce in us great joy. This is one of the tough questions that you have to uh, really wrestle with. And the question is, do you believe that pain or suffering is pointless? Or do you believe that pain and suffering is purposeful? I think there are many people who view pain and suffering as it's just an exercise in futility. Does anyone remember the the Greek, the myth, the story of uh, Sisyphus? He was cursed by the gods because uh, he was a pretty prideful guy. And they're like, you see that hill? Uh Uh-huh. You see that rock? Uh Uh-huh. You're going to roll that rock up to the top of the hill. Okay. Well, when you get to the top of the hill, guess what's going to happen, Sisyphus? The rock's going to roll right back down. Okay, well, what do I do next? We'll roll it back up. For endless eternity, this was the story. This was his, his curse, an exercise in futility. And I want you to know that in your pain is purpose, that God will allow, and I think this is so gracious of God, that he will allow the created order, including us, to go through great pain, through great suffering, so that in us it will produce great joy great blessing. Too many people see pain and suffering as an exercise in futility, as nothing more than rolling a rock up and down a hill. Here we go again. Here's this rock called pain and suffering. I've seen it before. I guess I'll just keep rolling. That is not God's intent. What God intends to use suffering and pain for in our life is that it would produce in us great joy. If you knew If you knew that your pain, that your suffering, whatever it might be, would be used of God 
to benefit other people and would be used of God to create great joy in you, would you say, okay, I'm okay with the pain, I'm okay with the suffering? I can't tell you their whole story, but I'll, you can write these references down. Job, I just have to mention his name, and you're like, oh, that dude suffered. But do you know what happened, what Job's, what, uh, Job's testimony was at the very end of his book? Job 42, 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In my pain, in my suffering, I went from being the guy who heard about you to now being the guy that sees you. And there is great joy if pain brings me to a point and to a place where, like Job, I don't want to be the guy that just says, I've heard of God. I've heard great stories of God. I can recount and reflect great things of God. I want to be the guy that sees God. And if suffering and pain is part of that process that cultivates joy so I see God, I'm okay with that. Joseph, another great example of when you hear his story, like, wow, phenomenal story, but man, he just, it was endless suffering and suffering and suffering. But at the end of his story in Genesis 50, 20, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What perspective Joseph had on pain and suffering? I realized that what you tried to do to me was to, to cause suffering and pain and devastation and destruction in my life. But guess what? God used what you intended for evil, and he used it ultimately that many people would be saved. Would you be okay with if God used your suffering, used your pain, used your situation, whether it's now and you're living it or in the future, so that someone else would be saved, so that someone else would see Jesus and God in you? Would you be okay to say, I'll suffer, even if it's just for one person, that they'd come to know God. Okay, this is not where we chase out suffering. You don't have to because it will come. This is when suffering comes, will you say, God, I'm okay because I'm trusting that this is for my joy, my benefit, that you'll use this to benefit others, and ultimately you would be glorified in it. Practically speaking, again, when suffering comes... How do you actually live in it, work in it, labor as it were, so joy is the outcome? And again, very two quick things is rather than shake your fist at God and say, why me? Ever done that? When it comes, your first response is, God, why me? Why are you picking on me? Why not respond by saying, why not me? I've got countless stories of men in Scripture who, who counted themselves worthy that they got to suffer, and the response was not, why me? The response was, why not me? That I would be counted worthy to suffer for, for the name of, of Jesus, for my joy, the benefit of others, and to the glory of God. And I think, secondly, is rather than asking why me, ask why not me. And a second one is just simply, don't look for an escape hatch. I think when suffering comes, we try to bail. Can you imagine if a pregnant woman literally delivering in labor was like, I'm out of here. Like, I, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want this. This hurts too much. And she ran out of the hospital. That obviously, it, would, would, it wouldn't go well. There wouldn't be a happy ending to that story. But I think what happens when suffering comes, people try to bail too quickly. Uh, Thomas 
Merton, who was an author and monk. Uh, and monks just say genius things because they sit around in caves and think of these things. But he said this, the truth that many people never understand until it is too late is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. (laughs) I'm thankful he sat in a rock cave and thought of that. So many of us are just fearful of hurt and pain in our life that we bail. And if you're in the midst of it right now, my message and Scripture's message to you is not suck it up. Stay where you are. Why? Because God is using that to produce in you a greater joy that will be for your benefit, the benefit of others, and to the glory of God. Number three finish these last two very quickly. Uh, Suffering stirs within us hope. You look back at Romans 8, 23 through 25. I read this one. Not only so, but we ourselves who who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not, is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Suffering, number three, stirs within us hope. You ever met someone and maybe you just had to look in the mirror? That they just lost all hope. They had absolutely no hope when they considered their present circumstance, situation, pain or suffering, and they looked forward darkness. There was just, they looked forward and there was absolutely no hope. Now, hope is a word that gets used a lot, right? I I hope she likes me. I, I hope I get that job. I hope I get that raise. I hope, I hope, I hope for all of these things. But the way we often use hope is not how the Bible actually uses or defines what hope means. So we often use hope to express a desire for some future result that's ultimately uncertain. I hope she likes me. Well, I don't know if she's going to like me, but I hope she does. There's an uncertainty in saying that because you just don't know. That's worldly hope. But biblical hope uh, indicates a situation in which the future, it's done. It's certain. It's One author said, hope is faith ultimately looking forward. So hope, when suffering comes, it stirs within me hope. And hope serves as an anchor. If you consider just a ship that's being tossed around, it's got to have a firm anchor to hold it, no matter how big the waves of the storms come. And so when suffering comes, when pain comes, when it comes, you will either be blown back and forth or your hope, your certainty in what God is doing and what God has in store for you will hold you anchored firm. Where you're not just moving back and forth. Why? Because I have hope. I'm not uncertain that this will happen one day. I have absolute certainty that what God is doing is using this pain or this suffering for my good, the benefit of others, and to his glory. 
And Paul highlights one of the things that he says is hope stirs within us also patience. And what that means is rather than when suffering comes, and it will, and you might be in it, you might be in it this week. When hope comes or when suffering comes, I can say I can wait patiently. Why? Because I have the hope of my future is absolutely secure. There is glory in store. There is heaven in store. That's number three. Suffering stirs within us hope. All right, number four, and we'll wrap it up with this. Suffering enables us to encounter the Spirit of God in a most personal way. Have you ever been in a situation that you just, you know you needed to pray, but you just couldn't? Like the pain, the suffering was just, it was that intense. Whether it was physical, emotional, relational, whatever it might be, it was just so severe, so intense, the loss was so great, the devastation was so painful, the heartache was just beyond shattered. And you know that you just you wanted to pray, but you couldn't even get the words out of your mouth. Like suffering, it beats on us, right? No, please don't misinterpret. I'm not saying suffering is easy. And there are moments where suffering, it just overwhelms where we are so weak. We can't even do the things that we know we want to do. Four years, three or four years ago, I was in a car accident and uh, some gentleman who was 16 talking on a cell phone in a fancy Jeep Liberty, not that I remember the details, uh, rammed into the back of my car and left me with 10 slip discs in my back. And it really alterly, uh, altered my life. I used to be very athletic and love to do a lot of things, but I'm limited in some of the things I can do now because I have back pain from getting hit. And I remember in the height of, I was laid up in my bed for three weeks because any time I would stand, it would compress my spine and the nerves would just shoot this pain through me. And so for three weeks, I just laid up in bed. And I had many people like, man, you must be, obviously it's a bummer, but you must be just enjoying time of prayer, time of just reading. I'm like, dude, I haven't prayed or read my Bible in three weeks. And they're like, how is that possible? I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. But I can't eat, the pain was that great. That's just one physical example that came to mind of you think that I would spend those moments just crying out to God for help, for healing, for relief from the pain. I couldn't even utter words. And this is the beauty of what suffering in weakness, what suffering does, is it stirs, uh, it enables us to have an encounter with the Spirit of God in a most personal way. Meaning when I can't pray, that's when God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit kicks in and begins interceding on my behalf. And can I just tell you that I'm thankful that in my weakness, I pray stupid things. I pray, God, get me out of this. But the Holy Spirit interceding in my weakness prays, God, thank you for putting him in this. Give him the grace and the courage and the strength that he'll need to stay his course. I'm thankful that the Spirit prays, as Paul says, in accordance with the will of the Father. Because in my weakened state, I pray all sorts of crazy things. I remember praying some things to the dude in the Jeep Liberty. I'm like, I probably shouldn't be praying that type of thing. But I'm glad that those weakened prayers are not listened to. It's the Spirit 
interceding on my behalf in my weakness, praying in accordance with what I need, with what God's will is. Suffering enables us to encounter the Spirit of God in a most personal way. You ever experienced that? You ever experienced that time where the Spirit, you just, I can't say anything, but I sense the Spirit is really groaning on my behalf before God. I'll be honest, and I think most of us don't experience that. And I think the reason why is one word, weakness. Somewhere along the way, we picked up the message thinking that God wants you to be strong, that you need to be the world's toughest man or toughest woman. Don't show any weakness. Don't show any dependence. Figure it out. Knock that one out on your own. Until I get to a point of just weakness, that's when the Spirit of God begins to intercede. And many of us don't get to a point of weakness because we're so ashamed of, I will appear this way. I will appear needy, too dependent on God. Well, I will tell you the truth, unless you get to that point of weakness, and suffering will create that in you, unless you get to that point of weakness, you will not experience what the Holy Spirit inside you is longing to do. So rather than trying to be the tough one who's got it all together, enter into a moment of weakness. God, I am so over my head, I am so overwhelmed, I don't even know what to do, nonetheless what to say. So maybe your prayer is not a prayer of words. It's literally just a prayer of just sitting. Not sitting and sulking, but sitting and trusting that the Spirit of God, bless you, is interceding on your behalf, praying in accordance with God's will. Suffering stirs in us a desire for heaven. Suffering will be used to produce great joy. Suffering stirs within us hope. And suffering enables us to encounter the Spirit of God in a most personal way. I have not said once that suffering will be easy. I have not said that the heartache and the pain and the death and the destruction, whatever it might be, would ever be easy. But what I am saying is that God will use suffering in your life, will use pain in your life for your good for the benefit of others, and that God would be glorified. I want you to know that whatever amount of pain or suffering you have endured, are enduring, or will endure, no amount of pain will be wasted. And I think much pain is wasted because when suffering comes, we run the wrong way. But God uses suffering or pain in our lives for our good, the benefit of others, and to the glory of God. As uh, we would just close up, I kind of had in mind um, uh, two people uh, that are here today, and one is you might be you might be sitting in your chair just wanting to cry your eyes out because your the pain is that thick; it's that real. And just as we would respond and celebrate communion and, and enter into to worship through song, my challenge, my encouragement for how you would respond to God is just sit. Just sit silently where you are. And if you're that person in the midst of the suffering right now, 
God knows you, he knows the situation, and he knows where you are. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to be at work in you, interceding, praying on your behalf. So rather than trying to muster up some fancy prayer or response, just sit in silence, trusting that if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will intercede for you on your behalf. The second person I have in mind is there are people here who don't have a relationship with God at all. And much of your suffering has led to not only anxiety and just worry, but has led towards a lot of anger and a lot of hurt towards God. I can just, I'll be honest with you, the only reason I have a, um, the only reason I even understand suffering is that because there's a God. Outside of God, suffering would lead me to just chaos. It would lead me to despair. It would lead me to great depths of depression. Because I would see my suffering has no point, has no purpose. It's the rolling of a rock up a hill endlessly. And if you're here and you do not have a relationship with God, I imagine your pain and your suffering is even greater because you don't understand the point or the purpose behind it. And the only way that you will understand suffering is when you begin a relationship with God. And the way that we begin a relationship with God is when we accept by faith God's Son, Jesus Christ. When we confess that we are sinful people, that we have willfully chosen sin, willfully rebelled against God, but God has graciously and in His mercy provided for us redemption that those who would come to Jesus who was sinless, who was perfect, came to pay the penalty for our sin, that those who would come by faith and receive Jesus, that's how we have a relationship with God. I have hope in heaven. I have hope in glory. I have hope. I'm certain that that's where I'm going. Not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus and what he's done. Many people don't have hope of glory, hope of heaven, because their life is still in their own hands. If you've not yet placed your life in the hands of the Savior, do that today. And I will be clear that suffering does not end when you begin the journey with Jesus. But now I have a context for suffering of how God's using it for my good, the benefit of others, and to his glory.